Our scripture reading today comes from John, the last chapter of John, John chapter 21. We're going to be reading from verse 9 through 19. John writes, When the disciples had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, and thought there were so many, and though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have some breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, when you used to fasten your own belt to go wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. And he said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. And after he had said this to him, he said, follow me, the word of the Lord. We are in a series about the greatest comeback, about how Jesus came back from death and and what that did for imagination and hope in the midst of despair and death. And we are now in the midst of looking at uh, followers of Jesus who have their own comeback stories. Uh, last week, we looked about Thomas and coming back from doubts and coming back from disbelief. And today, we are looking about coming back from denial, coming back from disassociating with someone. And I feel like um, we, maybe you only go just to the extreme when you think about this topic of like, what would you do in the worst scenario in which somebody um, puts your life on the line? Would you say that, yes, you connect with God or not? Um, But most of our lives, we're not into that extreme space. Most of us wrestle with, do I want to associate with someone on a much more common level? And so you think about, perhaps if you want to imagine back into uh, your teenage years, into your high school years, in which somebody might have been gossiping or bad-mouthing another classmate, and would you stick up for the classmate? Would you say, they're my friend. I, you know, I know this person. You should, you should get to know them better. They're okay. Um, or do you just let that kind of painful talk, that shaming process continue? Or, so will you actually join in with that identity with that friend? Or would you disassociate with them when it became too difficult, when it was too, too challenging to hold on to that relationship? Now, there's moments in our lives where we might know that, that challenge for ourselves of, would I put my own self, my own reputation, my own relationship at stake here, or will I act like I don't know this person? 
Now, we all live in a very strange bubble in this conversation because we live in the social media age, which means we have to visibly show friendships in a very different way uh, that we never had to do out kind of visibly out loud. Uh, for the young folks who might be watching, uh, I'm going to talk about a platform that it's okay you don't know. Uh, but when social media started, one of the early platforms was MySpace, which um, it was the early days of social media. Uh, it had its place. But one of the things that it asked you to do, which was just so awkward, was it asked you to put your favorite eight friends, and you got to pick them, and they got a highlighted spot on your page, which is like super anxiety-inducing, because like, who I pick, uh, who am I offending in the midst of this? Like, if I pick you and I don't pick someone else, like, probably you had more than eight friends. <laughs> so for the hundred friends who look on that and see I'm not on your top eight, they are feeling maybe a little bit offended. Um, but then even if you put them on, what order are they in? Who's my best friend? And it's not just that you have one, but like, that you're gonna tell everybody, here's who that list is and here's who's on it. And then there's painful moments where somebody is going to manipulate someone and act like you're on that top list, and it's just a joke, it's just a, a thing to make fun of somebody else, to make them feel like they're on the top of the list. And thankfully, Facebook or Twitter and Instagram, they haven't recreated that part of MySpace into their spheres, but we all end up having to make decisions on whether we want to engage in a platform or not, and then who's on our friend list. And sometimes you might feel a little bit embarrassed because if you've got a wide net of friends and you make a comment about something and then there's this discussion that happens on your Facebook wall or wherever it is, and it's like people from different parts of your life are saying things and, and you're like, you feel embarrassed, perhaps, by someone else's behavior on your wall. They're my friend. My reputation is connected to you. What are you doing? Why are you saying this thing? And so we get forced into this conversation of like, should I unfriend somebody? Should I block them? Should I mute them? Should I just leave the platform altogether? Like, do I really want to connect with any of you? <laughs> do I want to associate myself with any of you or with this particular person, with this group? And so, in a weird way, we all actually kind of face with this question of who do I want to associate with? Who do I want people to see that I associate with? And that's true about our friends. That's also true about God of like, you know, do you post about your faith or not? Do you want people to realize that's a part of your life or not? We are all constantly making decisions about do I associate with them? Do I want people to know that? And we should not just neglect to talk about the extreme cases. Most of us don't live in the extreme cases. But it's unfair for us not to realize that there are Christians who are faced with a much more challenging version of that. It's not just, are you gossip conversation at your workplace or whatever, um, but that your life is at stake. And it's hard to understand that level of anxiety and fear. One of the, the biggest persecuting moments in the Christian history was in the early days. And um, usually around 250, you could pick as a date that was particularly a bad time to be a Christian. In the early days of Christianity, let's say the first 200 years or so, usually there was local sporadic persecution. Like you got on the wrong side of a particular ruler, a particular person with power, and yes, they could bring you to trial. If you didn't recant your faith, they had reasons that they could punish you. 
But most of the time, it wasn't like a widespread, everybody who's a Christian, round them all up, like a widespread empire persecution. But around 249, an emperor came to power who had a military background, who wanted to kind of bring up the kind of pagan rituals and, and kind of background of the state and really wanted to puff up uh, the, the precision of the emperor and the empire. And so Emperor Decius came in and, and he decided to make a widespread rule that every single person in the, in the empire, with some slight exclusions, actually uh, Jewish people did not have to follow this, uh, this rule. Um, every person in the empire must make a sacrifice to the gods and to the emperor. You needed a certificate of proof to show that you had followed through with this widespread order. Now, the, the Jewish faith was excluded because they had been an older religion and had a place of prominence. It might feel weird saying that. We might always think about them as a minority religious tradition, but they had some benefits in the Roman Empire. But Christianity as a new superstition had no sort of old heritage to rely on. So as a Christian, you were, along with everybody else in the empire, required to go make a sacrifice, get a certificate, and prove your loyalty to the state, to the emperor, to the gods. This put a lot of pressure on the everyday Christian because you were forced with an option. Do you go through with it, make the sacrifice to other gods, um, recant your faith, become one of the empires, kind of like you're a good citizen? Or do you start bribing some officials, figure out who can get you a, a forged document or who can give you a, a certificate saying that you had done this thing even though you hadn't? Are you going to run away? Are you going to hide? Are you going to try to get out of the situation, just find a desert wilderness spot you can survive for a few years? Who knows how long this persecution might last? Or would you just say, no, I'm not doing it, and face the potential persecution, torture, or death that might come your way? Like, that's not a great list of options. Uh, nobody was grateful to be put into that situation. Uh, and so Christians responded in all sorts of ways, but overwhelmingly a lot of them uh, went some sort of trajectory of I've got to survive this, and most people did not just I'm going to go get tortured, or I'm going to go be killed, um, but we can understand how challenging of a question, of a difficulty that moment was. I feel like it's at least helpful to think about the, like, the dire stakes of that. Do I show who I am even when my life is at, on, the, on the line? Like to think about Peter, he doesn't just deny Christ because there's no stakes involved and he just doesn't believe in him, but like Peter does fear for his life when Jesus is about to be crucified. He's been arrested, he's been taken by a mob and he doesn't know what's gonna happen to Jesus and he doesn't know what's gonna happen to him. And so Peter is in the scene where he's in a courtyard outside of this interrogation that's happening to Jesus. And some people start pointing at him and recognizing him and they're like, hey, wait, you're with that Jesus guy, right? And while someone's being, going through a, a kind of a mockery of an actual trial, a rushed mob rule kind of decision-making about what's going to happen to this man, it's not easy to say, yeah, yeah, I'm one of him. I support that guy that everybody wants killed. And so Peter's in this courtyard, he's warming himself by the fire, and people keep coming up to him and saying, hey, you're, you're with him, right? And Peter three times says, no, I'm not with him. 
And that third time when a rooster crows, and he's like, oh, Jesus told me I was going to do this. I said I wouldn't. Jesus told me I was going to deny him. And I appreciate that the gospel stories and all of the gospels give this note that Peter weeps, that he's like incredibly emotional about the fact I've just let Jesus down. I said I wasn't with him. And so Peter takes the gravity and realizing I wasn't with him. I I didn't support him. And so he denies Jesus. But I think in our usual readings of this story, we individualize this like we privatize our faith all the time. And so this story becomes the, the story of Peter denying Jesus, and we become opportunities of would I deny Jesus or not. And we think about this in an exclusive way, that relationships is just me and God by, by ourselves. But what happened with Peter and what happened throughout church history, that denial of God is not just a one-on-one thing. It's a group thing. When Christians in the third century had to decide, will I be persecuted or not? Will I say that I'm a Christian and stand up to the empire, or will I falsify records, or will I uh, you know, flee? It became a community problem. It wasn't just this private problem, uh, because the church had to continue moving on, and there were some different reactions to people who had lapsed. It was kind of their phrasing of people who had stopped being and professing their Christianity for a while and then came back to the faith. So the question became, what do we do with everyone who decided to make a sacrifice? What do we do with everyone who falsified records? And it became a church problem, a community problem, because not everybody did the same response. So there was a really harsh response, the rigorous line, that said, if you denied God, we are denying you. There's no forgiveness there. You had already been baptized. You had already been a Christian. When you denied God, that was the end. You can't come back. Forevermore gone. On the other side, there were Christians who were very lenient who said, come on back. We know it was a hard problem. Just, Just join our ranks. Come back. It'll be okay. We forgive you. And in the midst of that, a whole lot of middle ground, a whole lot of tension. Because you can imagine if your mother, if your grandmother, your father, your, your son, if somebody who meant something to you was tortured and burned and executed for holding on to the faith, it would be very hard to forgive the person who took the easy way out. Right? Like, we how do we forgive somebody who turned our back on us when we saw somebody else who suffered so much? When people who we cared about hold on to their faith and and suffered for it, how do I forgive somebody who took the easy way out? And so there were some who want a a direction of, well, we'll forgive you, but it's going to be at your deathbed. (laughs) Like, we're not going to forgive you until the last moment. And what developed out of that moment, actually, was a, a system of penance. If you've ever heard about Christian penance and kind of like specified ways of asking for forgiveness, of having to show your, your regret, your, your disdain for what you had done. Like this kind of like codifying a practice of I need to show my, my sorrow for what I've done arose from that time because people needed to see that you didn't take it lightly, that you disappeared when things got hard. And so you can imagine just everyday Christians trying to wrestle with, 
what was my response? What are your responses? And then it got challenging because you started looking at the leaders. Was the pastor or the priest, the bishop of your area, what did they respond when things got hard? And so for those who, who wanted to not let anybody back, well, what if this whole city has got a, a leader who ran away, who made a sacrifice? Is the ministry that they're doing still valid? Are people who were baptized into churches in their areas, are they really Christians or not? It became a massive communal problem what to do with forgiving or not forgiving those who had disassociated themselves with the church, with God, with Christianity. And it was definitely not an easy time uh, to be a Christian or a Christian leader. And actually the answers to those questions, like for those who took a rigorous route or a, a penance route or a lenient route, they lasted for a long time. There were Christians in North Africa until the seventh century who still held on to a schism who said, I can't associate with you Christians who, who went easy on everybody. And in the midst of that is kind of our story. Like we're all, it's hard to forgive people who've turned their back on you. Like it's hard to forgive when someone, when you most needed them, turned their back. When you most needed their support, their friendship, their, their praise, whatever it is that you needed from them and they've turned their back on you. It's hard to get over that. It's hard to get past that. And so our story shows Jesus showing up to Peter in a way that I think is actually quite scandalous. Like, if we actually appreciate how challenging, how painful it is when someone denies you, when they reject you, when they don't want to associate, I'm not one of you. And what's interesting, I think we always read Peter as just simply denying Jesus. Uh, and I think it's because of some of the language around Peter about Jesus' prediction, that Peter, you'll deny me three times. But the language of what people ask Peter that he says no to is more expansive or wider than that. In John's version of this story, in John 18, uh, the, there's twice that Peter is asked the question and is said, it says here, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? You're not one of this guy's inner crowd. You're not one of that group of people who follow this man, are you? And he's at this charcoal fire scene trying to warm himself up where usually in the cold you're getting brought closer together while he's actually pushing people away. Mark's version has a slightly different wording. Yes, they ask you were also with Jesus, and he says no. Then it says, this man is one of them. He says no. Then it goes on, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And in Matthew's version, we can hear your accent. But Peter isn't just denying Jesus, he's denying the community that Jesus has brought about. He wasn't just denying Jesus, but all of them. You're one of those people, right? You're one of those disciples. You're one of those followers. No, no, that's not me. And I know some of us, we might make a distinction. Uh, maybe you feel like you can hold tight to God, but you have a harder time holding tight to God's people. That there are some Christians who act out in certain ways that it makes you uh, feel like you just really wish you could push them further out and dis, just hide from Christian behavior. But Peter doesn't just deny Jesus, he denies being one of the community that God is bringing about through Jesus. 
And I feel like we so often miss that that's a huge, this is a huge part of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not just about bringing you to God, but bringing you into what God is doing in the world and to God's community and to God's people. It's the restoration of all things, not just you by yourself. And so Peter's denial is not simply rejecting Jesus and what God's doing through Jesus, but also rejecting the community at large. And so in that context, Jesus shows up. He's at the shore. Uh, I love the language in the text where it says they didn't dare ask if it was Jesus. All these resurrection scenes get this kind of weird, like, that's Jesus, but like there's a little bit of doubt, there's a little bit of is that actually Jesus or not? And in this resurrection scene, they're like, ah, we know that's Jesus, we're not gonna even ask. And they bring in this miraculous catch of fish after having been fishing all night, catching nothing. And they get to the shore, and they get to the shore and there's already a fire made up. There's already breakfast being made. And Jesus is making this meal for his disciples. And we kind of take for granted. You know, Peter didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus that night where he denied him. Jesus didn't come to the meal and say, hey, you group, you, you know, you ten, you get to have a meal with me. Peter, sorry, no meal for you. Uh, but Peter is a part of this meal. And I actually wonder, because we don't have Peter telling the story to anybody, I wonder how many of the other disciples at this stage even knew Peter had denied Christ. Like, is this like a a dirty secret that he doesn't want to share that's like, I can't talk about that? Because it's probably not something you want to talk about when you've fallen short, when you've you've rejected somebody that has mattered to you. Like, did Peter go home that night and say, man, Jesus was right, guys. I denied him three times tonight. Maybe he had, but maybe he hadn't. And he's on that shore having a meal with the other disciples, and Jesus is there, and Jesus comes up and he asks him a question Peter, son of John, do you love me? And this progression, he says it to him three times. And it is no accident that it's that setting and he's being asked this question three times. Uh, The Gospel of John has a charcoal fire two times in the entire Gospel, once when Peter denies Christ, and here when he's asked three times, do you love me? And in this story, it's almost like Peter doesn't quite know what's happening until the third time that this question is asked. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, man, you know I love you. If you think about like that friend who was being bad-mouthed that you didn't stand up for, you say, hey, we're friends, right? Yeah. Hey, we're friends, right? Yeah, yeah. Hey, we're friends, right? Of like whatever it took to be taken back to that place and the realization I failed you. I didn't say I was with you. I I didn't say I was one of you. And so Peter in that moment becomes saddened because he realizes his language after that. Lord, I know you know everything. That's part of what makes me feel like maybe he hadn't talked about this denial to anybody yet. Where he's like going along with it. Yeah, Lord, you know I love you. The third time he gets asked, he realizes, oh my goodness, he knows. And maybe you've had those awkward moments where you're like, does that person know that I've, I've said that thing? Or do they know what I've said? And you're, you're unsure and you're afraid. And Jesus just simply, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter realizes, you know 
that I love you and you know that I've let you down. You know that I've denied you too. And Jesus never berates Peter about the past. He invites him into the past so he can heal. It's not just like, I want to torture you with what you used to do and how you've fallen short. I brought you back to this fire setting, this campfire setting. I've reminded you about this this ability to speak for me or not. And Jesus invites Peter to affirm his relationship. He invites Peter to affirm that, yes, I do love you. I didn't act out of that love before, but yes, I do love you. Peter, do you love me? And Jesus doesn't just invite him to affirm the relationship and to give him the opportunity to say, yes, I do, three times. He empowers Peter to do something, to be a part of something, to serve in the midst of that community that he had distanced himself from. He didn't say, well, Peter, you know, in five years, maybe we'll come back to a moment where you'll have some opportunities. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep, my lambs. Serve my sheep, my lambs. Like, right now, in the present. And Peter might not feel like he's worthy of it in the present yet. Maybe his friends don't even realize how he's, let him, he's been let them down, but in that moment, do you love me now? I have a mission for you. I have a purpose for you. And so no questions asked, just other than, do you love me? And when you've been betrayed, when someone's walked away from you, uh, I know that there's painful moments for people, like people who've walked out of your life, people who should love you, who should support you, who have left. To be face-to-face and to be able to offer the kind of grace and mercy to say, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Let's be in this ministry, this work together. It's a powerful, powerful scene. And the way of love that sometimes people feel like is really like weak, like, like, oh, love, that sounds like flimsy or something. Like, the way of love is so uh, scandalously strong and, and deceptively strong because you're like, oh, love you means you just kind of forgave things and, and like, oh, you're just not very strong or convicted or whatever it is. But like, to love someone so much that I'm going to restore you even when I feel hurt by you. you. You've hurt me, but I'm going to love you nonetheless. I'm going to love you and restore and lift you up instead of holding on to the grudge and to the pain. And so we are all invited into that scene because I know that there's times where each of us have fallen short of who God has invited us to be. And the natural inclination is to want to run and hide from that because we're afraid of the the judgment and the pain. But what is it to show up on that shore and to just be asked the question by God, do you love me? And maybe this week, that's just a prayer you need to invite yourself into throughout the week. Just say your name. Hear your name from God. Do you love me? And as you answer that, maybe you might start to recall the times where you haven't always lived out that love well. Not to feel just bad and feel sour, but to be reminded about how God can still lift you up from that thing, can still give you new purpose, new possibility. And so 
God invites you to be a part of the ministry and the mission of extending that love, extending that grace, that mercy, in a world that wants to be judgmental and that wants to cut off people every time they fail. And so that feeding the sheep, that serving the lamb, you know, like that imagery uh, is the reminder that, again, it's not just our relationship to God alone, private, away from other people. If you love God, it means that you are supposed to be about taking care of God's people. You're supposed to serve people. You're supposed to care for people. That those things go hand in hand. And so God asks, do you love me? And, and then the follow-up is, okay, serve your neighbor. Love your, your family member, even when it's not always easy. If you love me, care for that stranger, care for the outcast. If you want to show that you do love me, there are plenty of people that you can show that love for, that you can care for, you can serve. And each day you are invited into that present moment of showing that love for God by showing it to those around you. And so we are all invited not to just be lifted up from where we've fallen short, but to help lift others up too. That there's going to be other sheep who fall short. There's going to be others who deny you, who deny God. And you have the opportunity to choose how are you going to be God's presence for that person in that day? How are you going to be a visible sign of what God's like in the world? Be the image, the symbol of God at work? Do you forgive? Do you show mercy? Do you show grace? Do you act with kindness, with love, with restoration? Or with bitterness, with judgment? with an inability to allow restoration to take hold. And so may we all be like Peter at the shore, invited by God to reflect on our love and our relationship to God and to each other, that it matters about our love and our identification with one another. And so God asks you today, do you love me? Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, we each week talk about your love. We talk about the story of how you've been faithful. But Lord, help us to fully realize and appreciate in the present uh, your wonderful love, your faithfulness, even on our least faithful days. Lord, I ask that you might be with all who feel guilt or shame, embarrassment for the times that they've failed you or failed others, the times where we've run away from relationships that we couldn't figure out what restoration looks like. Lord, we ask for forgiveness for every time where we've allowed brokenness to remain. Lord, we ask that you might give us a hope and an imagination for what a new day for ourselves and a new day for those around us can look like. Lord, help us to have a gratitude for your healing and your transformation. And Lord, help us to be abundant in generosity and love and grace for those who are around us. Lord, I ask that you might encourage and bring peace to all who feel the tenderness of the pain of being rejected. 
And Lord, I ask that you might help us to feel that embrace, that warmth, that peace that comes from your everlasting arms. Lord, help us to accept your love today and to share it with those around us. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.